0: this morning as we continue with that we also will present him who was to be the object of our saving and keeping faith and so isn't it interesting that this morning we'll be talking about the object of our faith and next week we'll be listening to the the great work of the cross And how appropriate it is that the Holy Spirit has constructed this series to fall this way. We, We don't plan these things. It's just the planning of God. And we would not have thought that this morning would fall on a Palm Sunday. It was not planned. I tell you that so you'll know. At least to some extent that the Holy Spirit actually does do some leading around here in What we present and what we say, although sometimes I know you might think otherwise, but hopefully it is God. You remember now, over the last three weeks, Keith has already talked about and shared the necessity of faith. And he shared several truths about faith by using Hebrews as the backdrop. Using Hebrews as the presentation of what it is to have faith. And the necessity of faith and the various aspect of faith aspects of faith now all of us have learned this and if we didn't know it coming in we have learned it obviously i think we already know it every one of us is born with a natural ability to express faith every person who is alive and functions normally functions on the basis of faith our lives are based in faith you remember that sermon and if you're not sure of what we're talking about, go ahead and I don't remember whether it was the first, second, or third. I think it was either the first or the second. Everything about us is a faith. And so the issue isn't, do we have faith? That's never the issue. Because every one of us has faith. The question is not whether we have faith. But the question is this. Is our faith biblical? When it comes to the issue of God and when it comes to the issue of eternity, when it comes to the issue of that which will be mostly important and will remain forever. And so please this morning, disabuse yourself of, I I just don't have faith. You do have faith. I don't have enough faith. It's, what is your faith? Is it only natural or is it biblical? Biblical. Is it the kind of faith that can save you? Is it the kind of faith that can keep you and us unto eternal life in order that we will live for the glory of God and please Him in all things? Is that the faith that we have? That's the faith that Hebrews specifically is talking about. That's the particular faith, biblical faith, that was under attack in these Hebrew Christians' lives It was not faith in general, it was specific biblical faith. Faith to trust Christ for salvation and faith to walk with God as He leads, as He provides, as His presence is with us. In a way that honors Him and walking through it all in a way that shows that God is preeminent and that our God is God. That's the faith, you see, that was under attack to the Hebrews because of all the difficulties and the strife and the persecutions and the attacks. They were being tempted to abandon their biblical faith for natural thinking. They were being tempted to leave what was biblical and what was God in their lives and what would have ministered the blessings and the promises of God to them and through them, they were being tempted through all that was going around them to back away from that and retreat into the kind of faith that they had. That was their problem. Isn't it interesting today that we're in this season and the Holy Spirit is doing the same kind of a work in our lives We may be here this morning, some of us, under attack because of the financial requests and the, you may think, bombardment of this. You may think, well, we're not talking enough about it. Various levels of understanding and opinion here. And because of this season in this church, I just, I'm just, you know, are you under attack Not just not to participate in the way the Holy Spirit wants you to, or to be open to that, or to embrace that. But is that a deeper work of the enemy? To begin to undermine something much more precious here through the avenue of our attitudes toward building and giving and sacrifice. And so what did the Hebrew Christians need? Their faith was under attack. What did they need? Their biblical faith needed to be adjusted and strengthened. I mean, any time our faith, our biblical faith, and I will say faith this morning speaking about it, biblically, biblical faith, Anytime time our faith is under attack, we have a great need, always a need, but a greater need perhaps at that moment to have that faith adjusted, encouraged, and strengthened. And you see, they were being tempted to look the wrong to the wrong source or to the wrong object as, as a solution of their problems. And they thought that by backing away, their problems would be subsiding, but they didn't know that to look to the wrong source would allow them to actually be swallowed up by the very problems that they were allowing to turn their heads away from the presence and provision of God. They would have been swallowed up. Let us not be that way today or at any time in our lives where when things are going awry and there are difficulties and challenges and tests... We begin to try to figure it out and look away from the only source who is true, thinking that, well, if I back away or if I do something differently, or if I have a different attitude, if I can just do it another way than what I believe the Lord is calling me to do, then perhaps I won't be swallowed by that. You will be then swaddled by that which you have feared. So how does Hebrews... How does this author of Hebrews encourage and strengthen the faith of the believer? Their faith, as we said, was being redirected away from its divine object to other objects. And any time our faith is being redirected from its divine object, no matter how little or seemingly minuscule the redirection is, There is a huge danger of collapse. And so, you see, their faith had to be redirected from looking to the wrong source to looking to the correct and eternal source. When my faith is under attack, when I find that I am not walking appropriately according to the will of God, there is only one solution, not for me to try to do better but for me to go back to the source of faith in Him who saved me and who can continue to encourage and strengthen me and direct me. You see, the difference between natural faith and biblical faith is not in its function, as I said, but in its object and in its result. The difference between natural and biblical faith is not in the function of faith, It's in the object of faith and in the result of that faith. Now, unless we make a mistake here, biblical faith is never abstract. It's not this nebulous thing. It is always specific as to its object and result. It is always a very specific faith. It is a faith that is God's only means to glorify Himself. And that faith is biblical only when it is faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now listen to me one more time, lest you didn't hear me. Biblical faith is faith only biblical. And therefore Godly, and therefore glorifying God, and therefore blessing to us. Only as that faith is directed to one specific person. One specific person, Jesus Christ. That is biblical faith. Not faith in my faith, as Keith talked about. Not faith in my prayers. Not faith in my mom and them. Not faith even in the efficacy and in the power of this Word of God, this Bible. Not faith in what the church will do. Not faith in anything or anyone other than faith in one person alone. You're remembering Galatians 2.20. Turn to Galatians 2.20. And in a moment we'll turn to Hebrews. And if you need a Bible, you will need one this morning. If you would raise your hand, if you need need a Bible, we have some extras and we'll be more than happy to supply you with a Bible this morning. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand and brother, there's a lady over here, there's a lady back here, there's some uh, a, a, a gentleman over there who needs a Bible and we'll get you a Bible. Galatians 2.20 in the New Testament. And Paul in Galatians 2.20 answering the activity of Peter backing away from these Gentiles, when the Jews come in from Jerusalem. Paul says a very, very important and specific thing here. He says this. Where is it? 220. And it's one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. How many of you... Believe you've been crucified with Christ. That means you're saved. I have been crucified by Christ, with Christ. The life that I now live... I'm sorry. I have been crucified with Christ. If I get on to something else, I'm going to lose it. And it is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, the life that I now live, I live by faith. In whom... What does your Bible say? In the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Now, if anyone is the premier example, if you would, of a man of faith, it has to be the Apostle Paul. And Paul says, my life is constituted on the basis of trusting Looking to, depending upon, walking with, obeying, relationing with one man. And only one man, Jesus Christ. The man, Jesus Christ, the heavenly man. I live by faith in the Son of God. All of the faith in any other object whatsoever... Is both spurious and destructive. And the Hebrew writer knows this. And so his great effort, his great passion being led and being anointed and inspired by the Holy Spirit is to do this. What this group of Hebrew Christians needs is not a rah-rah, It is a reintroduction, if you would, a going back and remembering a presentation of one person and what he has done. And that's exactly what Hebrews does. Father, as we share your word today, Father, the joy that must have been yours when the object of all your love and devotion, the Lord Jesus enters Jerusalem to be inspected and tested so that as He gives Himself a family of God would issue forth from the work. Father, as any earthly father awaits joyfully the birth of his child and children. What joy there must have been in heaven that day when Jesus enters Jerusalem. This one man Father, this morning, would you cause us as your people two thousand years later to inspect, to consider, to remember, to trust this one man, a new. And in deeper ways than ever before. So, Father, we need the revelation work of your Holy Spirit. And we know that this is your will. And we're asking with great expectation and assurance that this is what you're going to do. Because you said, if Jesus be lifted up, all men will be drawn unto him. Father, Father, Cause Jesus this morning to be lifted up for your glory through our blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. They needed encouragement. They needed instruction. They needed strengthening. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. How does this author of Hebrews go about dealing with the issue of weakened biblical faith? How does he strengthen it? Well, notice what he does. He does not begin to talk philosophically and talk about the issues of the world and what they should and shouldn't be doing and how to help them out and self-help programs and psychological jargon. He immediately encouraged them through the Scriptures. Now, that's a whole sermon in itself. He immediately attacks the problem through the Scriptures. You remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. We're talking about the Old Testament. So that through perseverance, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so that is what this instructor, this great teacher of Hebrews, does. He immediately says, We need to deal with the problem. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a Bible study. And we're going to open the Torah. We're going to open the law, the prophets. We're going to look into the Old Testament. And we're going to see what God has said and what He's done. And in that process, we are going to find the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what do the uh, scriptures teach? They teach this, that only the person of Christ is the true object of biblical faith. That's what the scriptures teach. Now, don't think it's just the New Testament scriptures. The New Testament scriptures continue what the old had already begun. And bring it to fulfillment in one man. Him being prophesied and looked forward to in the old. And having been now brought to fruition in his birth. And fulfills all of that which has come. So we're not talking about two parts of a Bible. We're talking about one book of God. And the Old Testament being equally the Word of God as the New Testament is. Both equally the Word of God. Not one more important than the other. So a brief outline of Hebrews is given, and I've given this to you, and I've done it in a way that we typically don't do, but I've given us an outline that is going to be reminiscent, perhaps, of some of the instruction that you received in school. Don't rebel. The pop test won't be until the week after next And I've given, I don't know if it's a lot of detail. I don't think it is, but it may be for you. But let me share with you why I felt the Holy Spirit led me to do it this way. Because we're going to go through verse by verse. And glean from Hebrews who this great man is. First of all, there is, at least generally so in the church, I don't know to what extent here. A great weakness in reading the Word of God and gleaning from the Word the treasures that are in the Word. And we're not talking about in Hebrews going through Okay, I read my chapter today. I'm finished. I did my work. Did it. I'm out of here. I did my reading today, babes, and I got it under control. Oh, this is God speaking to us is also, I think, a great weakness in us of not pondering and considering and thinking and taking Scripture and Revelation from one part of the Bible and remembering Scripture and Revelation from another part of the Bible and beginning to put these parts together so we see how the Bible from Genesis through Revelation is a unit One single word from God. So I've given you an outline and I've given you other references, mostly New Testament references, since the references in Hebrews are Old Testament, to let us have an opportunity, when you leave today, of perhaps using this information more as a study sheet rather than I heard a sermon about that and I went on and gone to the next sermon. Using it as a personal study sheet and it was a huge struggle to get this down to this minuscule area. Huh, there's so much here. But we just stayed in Hebrews but the struggle was to go everywhere else. But to use it and to let God For you personally in your time of study and devotion and meditation and prayer and fellowship with God. And if you don't have that, you need to have it. Perhaps the Holy Spirit would lead you now or at some other time in the near future. To sit with Him through His Word and begin to consider God's favorite person. Jesus Christ, God's favorite person, because if we want to know God better and we want to be closer to God, there ain't no other way to do it other than to get to know Jesus better. That is the way. That is the way. So we outline Hebrews in a very general way. First, the first major division, Christ is superior in who he is as a person. You see, Hebrews presents the superiority of this one man over anything and anybody as the very foundation and crux for their faith. You notice where he starts. He starts immediately with God and what God has done in Christ. That's the very beginning place of tackling any insufficiency in your life and in my life. Begin at the source and then work through it and let God deal with the secondary minutiae. So first, Christ is superior. Chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. That's the first division of this book, or this letter, or this actually it's a speech, of this speech which occurs in two major sections. The person of Christ, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. And then the second division, the work of Christ, which we'll hear about next week. From chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through to the end, chapter 13, verse 25. So that's the main division of this speech to the Hebrews. The person of Christ and the work of Christ. That's what Hebrews is all about. And that's the way to have our faith strengthened. Who is this man and what has he done? Christ superior in his person this morning we'll be speaking about for a few minutes. And we're going to divide that up into two sections. Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God and Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. The first division, the Son of God and the Son of Man... And then next week, I'm not sure quite how Keith will handle this, but Hebrews divides then the next section, the work of Christ, into the finished priestly work of Christ, the cross, and the continuing work of Christ, the Holy Spirit. That's the very simple outline of Hebrews. And I think having this at least under your belt and before you, you can begin to look at it in a way that hopefully it will make more sense and come together a little better. So let's talk about Christ as superior. First of all, Jesus is presented as superior in two categories. As the Son of God and as the Son of Man. Let's look at Hebrews. Don't you love the way he begins? God know how you're doing, where you at, what's happening, nice to see, you. how you're momming them, God. He says, this thing, we got to get this thing off the ground fast. We have difficulties here, and we're going right to the heart of the matter, God. God, and I'm reading from New American Standard, to be a little different than some of yours, but hopefully there's enough of a similarity. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophet's, And in many portions and in many ways, we're talking about the Old Testament. In these last days, he has spoken to us in Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he, remember the Son, had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become a much better than the, having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now let's stop there. The first thing we begin with And the most fundamental issue in Christianity... Now, take this down and remember it. It should be in your notes. The most fundamental issue in Christianity is not the cross. The most fundamental issue in Christianity is not the teachings of Jesus. The most fundamental issue in Christianity is not the miracles... The most fundamental issue in Christianity is is Jesus God himself. That's the issue. <clears throat> Any time you're talking to someone about the faith, it will always be necessitated to go to this one issue centrally and controllingly. Is Jesus divine? Is he divine? If you weren't divine, the cross means nothing. If you weren't divine, God does not love us like Jesus said he does. He has to be divine. The divinity, the eternality, the godness of Jesus is the single issue in Christianity out of which everything flows and has its reason. Why could Jesus raise the dead? He was divine. Why could Jesus heal? He was divine. Why did He attract people through His words? He was divine. Why could He prophesy? He was divine. Why could He die on the cross for our sins? He was divine. And why did He rise from the dead? Because He is the eternal God Himself, God the Son. That's the issue in Christianity That overshadows and encompasses every other issue. Can you get it today, church? The issue isn't things about Jesus. It's Him Himself. He is divine. And and what proves His divinity? I could stand here all day long and say, I am divine, I am divine, I am divine, I am divine. I can only jump a few times, Al, and I'm going to collapse. You can tell I am not divine. Only my wife thinks I'm divine. No, no, she doesn't really. Trust me, she does. She knows better than everybody. He ain't divine. I know him. Right, Eddie? I can say that about you too, brother. You ain't divine. Eh. Look, what proves he's divine? Well, he said so. No, he loved people. No, he said God loves us. You see, when Jesus said God loves you, that means nothing. If he's not divine. Well how do you know he's divine? Because he rose from the dead. So you see the issues of his divinity and the resurrection are connected. One is the truth and one is the declaration of the truth. The resurrection doesn't make him divine. It declares him as divine. It doesn't make him divine. It declares him as divine. But so you see, Jesus, being divine in himself, even his very name, Yahshua, declares his divinity. Keith talked about this at some... I think Oh, Alpha the other night. I know I heard you say something about this the other day. Yahshua, Yah and Hosea, the two names put together. Yah mean I am. Remember, in Exodus 3, verse 15, 14... I am. Tell them that I am hath sent you. The name of eternal God, I am. There is no time in God. And Hosea means salvation. And so the two come together. Yeshua, or Jesus, which is the anglification of the Hebrew, Yeshua. I am salvation. Or sometimes translated, the Lord saves. But it literally means, I am salvation. Yah and Hosea are coming together and in His name is the declaration of His divinity. This is the Yah, the Eternal One, the I Am of the Old Testament having become a flesh and blood person. This is the One who is the object of our faith and devotion and our trust and the substance of our lives. He Himself Don't let the devil or any demon in hell or anything detract us from devotion to this one heavenly man. Because he is God's devotion. So let's look at Hebrews. I have to get through this pretty fast. Let's look at the first four verses. I've just read them. And I'm going to quickly go through this outline with you, but to show you what's there. Because what I'm concerned about is if you read those first four verses, you'd go through this thing and you wouldn't see what's there. When you read the Bible, take your time. Underline, outline, do something to find out what God is saying about first Himself and then what is He saying about us. See, because the primary issue with the Bible is what God is saying about Himself, not about me. So, number one, verse one, God revealed Himself partially before the coming of Jesus. The Old Testament shadows. Number two, verse two. Jesus is now God's literal language to us. Did you see where I said, in these last days, God has spoken to us in son? How many of you have in His Son? How many of you have the word His? Is your word His italicized in your Bible? It should be, because the word His is not in the Greek. God's literal language to us is Son. My language to you today is English. I speak to you and communicate to you in English. God's literal communication to us is Jesus Christ. He is the language of God To us. He spoke to us in Son. So I scratch out that little thing because it's more powerful to say God has spoken to us in Son. So that's the first thing. There's a declaration there of the eternality and the divinity of Jesus. Following that statement in verse 2, there are several facts that the Holy Spirit through this author gives us concerning this Son. Oh, there's so much to talk about that word son and begotting. But it means ever and eternally generating in relationship from the father, never having begun, always having been there. But the son idea doesn't talk about a sexual union. It talks about a relationship of the closest magnitude. That's where people get tripped up about, oh, the son of God, he had to have a mom and them. They miss it there. So let's look at the next several facts. First, in verse 2, the Son is the heir of all things. He's heir of all things. How? Through His obedience and through His submission to the Father. He inherits all things. As He comes as the great Creator, whose right it was in the beginning, but because of the fall it rebelled, therefore He obeys the Father. And as a result, the Father gives Him The church and the creation as an obedient man. But it's too much to go into today. Stop that. Stop that. Get away from that. He is the creator of all things, verse 2. Do you see where it says heir and creator? Are you following me? He's creator of all things. I have some references from the New Testament listed there. He is the exact. What does exact mean? Almost. Close. It's not similar. It's what? Remember? Similar substance or what? Same substance. It's not similar. He's not similar. He's the same. He's the exact representation of the nature of God. In verse 3, again, he sustains the universe through the word of his power. He is the sustainer. He's also the purifier from all sin. He's also the finisher of God's work, having sat down at the right hand of God, the majesty on high. In verse 4, he has been given, God has given him a much better name than all other names in heaven and earth. Why? Because he is the son of God. God who has done the work for the declaration of the righteousness of God through the gospel. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. After talking about the humility of Jesus, the writer says, Wherefore also God has highly exalted Him, and has given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua. God saves at the name and the declaration of God Almighty as Jesus Christ. Every knee shall bow and things in the heavens, on things on the earth, and things underneath the earth, and every tongue shall confess what? That one man, one man, that Jesus Christ is Lord is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He's the object, the source, the sustenance, the power, the reality of our faith. Continuing in chapter 1, verses 5 to 14. I won't read these, but in verses 5 to 14, Jesus as the Son of God, is shown to be superior to the angels. Remember, angels were very important people in those days. You remember Daniel? In chapter 9 had been praying for, what, three weeks? And all of a sudden this big angel walks in and Daniel kind of loses himself. Ooh, there's an angel here. I mean, this guy, the angel is big and powerful and majestic. If any of us saw one of these angels, I think we'd pass out. And as glorious and great as they are, Christ is superior. We saw that in Exodus. God said, I'm going to send an angel. I'm going to send the best I've got. But I'm sending an angel because I'm sitting here because you, you are not doing right. And Moses said, we ain't going nowhere because we love angels. Thank you for angels. We appreciate angels. We, we just enjoy that. But we cannot take a second rate. We need God himself because angels are finite beings. We need God Himself. You see, our faith needs God Himself, not even angels. So He's superior to the angels. Number one, in verse 5, He is superior in His unique relationship to God. Now notice what the author does here. In these verses, where is He quoting? He is quoting from Isaiah. He's quoting from Psalm. He's quoting from 2 Samuel. He's quoting all over the, uh, the, uh, the Old Testament, He's showing you that the Old Testament is the revelation of the Son of God. That is never fully understood until after the Holy Spirit is given. He's worthy to be worshiped and praised. Why? Because He's the eternal Son. He is exalted, verses 8 and 9. He's exalted in His throne and in His righteousness, and He's anointed by God. He has the power to create in verses 10 to 12. He is greater than the angels because he is glorified in verses 13 to 14. Go back and get into these verses and go back to the references and read the references and see what the Holy Spirit is telling us. Now, you see, Jesus as the Son of God, it's pretty obvious if he's the Son of God, he's superior. But He's not only superior as the Son of God, you see, but He's also superior as the Son of Man. Because, you see, if He does not become one with us, then His superiority is meaningless for us. I'm sorry, I didn't, didn't hear any amens. If He doesn't become one with us and as us, his superiority over the angels means nothing to us. There has to be both. We cannot keep Jesus in the category of being the Son of God only. As He is equally the Son of God, He is equally the God-man. Equally so. It is equally important to God's purpose for Jesus to be the eternal Son of God as it is for Him to be the eternal man. Who there's so much to talk about here. We cannot do it this way anymore. Talk about a man in the throne and what that means. You see, Jesus, the Son of Man, is God dwelling among us as a real man. As a real man. Remember in John 1.1? Turn there. John 1.1. 1, 1. Hold your hand in Hebrews. John 1.1. 1, 1. The Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for those guys who did do well on the test. Hopefully all of us now are reading the Word more than we ever did. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Let's do it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Three things. Did you notice the Holy Spirit said three things there? Oh, I don't know. I just read it, and I'm moving on. I got my Bible reading done today. Don't do that. Three things God said about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. What does that mean? Eternal. First thing. This word is eternal. In the beginning is a euphemism, meaning it ain't started. In the beginning was the word. Always been. Secondly, and the word what? Was what? The word with. What does that mean? This word is a separate, identified person in God. And the word was with God, God the Father. And then the third thing, not only the word is eternal, the word was with God, but Bradley, what is the third thing? This word is or was God. Was meaning, talking about in the very beginning. Three things. And then move down to John chapter 1 verse 14. Because, you see, as I said, it doesn't do us much good if Jesus is the Son of God and does not become a man. And He not only becomes a man in a fake way, which the Gnostics said, but He becomes a real flesh and blood person, such as we. So what does John 1.14 say? And the Word, what Word? The Word that was in the beginning, eternal the word that was a distinct person in the Godhead, God Himself, the Son, the word that was God, that word became flesh, took on a body and dwelt or tabernacled. The word tabernacle and dwelling means, shikah, which means glory. That shekinah, that dwelling glory. And tabernacled or dwelt among us and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of glory. What? Grace and truth. You see, this is the Son of God as a man. How would we ever know Him? How would we ever know anything about Him? How would we ever be able to attach ourselves to Him and receive Him unless He became such as we, yet without sin? So chapter 2, verse 5 to chapter 4, verse 13, talks about Jesus as the Son of Man. And what He did, look what He did. He humbled Himself. He humbled Himself to become a man. You see, as a man, please get this. And when I say as a man, I don't mean as a man devoid of divinity, but a man who is fully divine. And is God himself dwelling in flesh. People say, that can't happen. That can't happen. Who say? Who said that can't happen? You? It can happen. Because it did happen. And it's the truth. As a man, as a man, Jesus is the redeemer of mankind. Chapter 2, verses 9 to 18. You see, he was made a man little lower than the angels only for a little period of time. He suffered man's death for man. He broke Satan's weapon of death, thereby delivering men from the fear of death. As a man, as a man, he is merciful and faithful high priest who helps men, not angels. He may remember propitiation for our sin, therefore he's qualified to come to our aid. And as the Son of Man, He is shown to be superior even to Moses, whom the Jews probably almost deified, who was a servant in God's house. But you see, Jesus is the Son over the house. Moses is a servant in the house, but Jesus is the head of the house. And in fact, He Himself is the house and builds the house. Jesus is the source and sustainer of all that we believe about and receive from God both now and forevermore. He is the total source, the total provision, the total sustainer, the total everything about what we have believed and received from God both now and forevermore. I mean, I have to take a, a turn off the side of the road a second. When we go to heaven, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Remember, when we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. You thought I was going to do it. Who love it. We've got to sing that, Matt, and give us room to shout. Them shouting words, shouting words. I love shouting words. But even in heaven, why will we be maintained before the throne of God's glory forever? Not because we have been made innocent, but because even in heaven we will never be innocent. There will always and only be one innocent in heaven. From the family of man. Amen. How will we maintain there? We are maintained in His eternal risen manhood. Representing us and us being maintained in the eternal manhood of Jesus Christ. If Jesus were ever to stop being a risen man, we are gone. Don't ever think that even in heaven... We there, finally, and we can be here on our own. Even in heaven, it won't take faith from our part, but it will take the ever-maintaining, sustaining, continuing presence and work of Jesus Christ for us to remain in heaven, let alone walk on earth. Only one innocent person, and we'll be a bunch of rebels Guilty, but justified by God's free grace through faith. Amen? Always remembering those scars that said, I was guilty and I shouldn't be here. But what are we supposed to do with all of this? You see, the church is encouraged, remember in chapter 3 of Hebrews, to consider this. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Dwell on Him. Ponder Him. Look at Him. Think about Him. Know Him through the Word. Make Him not a priority, but the preeminent one in your life. And faith, Cannot fail. Because he cannot fail. So consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest, The Apostle is the one who comes from God with God's message for us. The High Priest is the one who goes from the people unto God. And in Jesus, He comes from God with God to us. And then as the High Priest, as a man the High Priest, He takes all of us in our sin before the very throne of God through His death and resurrection. And so the two become one forever. The Apostle and high priest. It's just so much here. That's why it takes 20 years to go through Hebrews. Now, knowing this all about knowing all this about Jesus, knowing all of this, who he is and who he ever will be. And I'm not going to read this to you, but is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul would write in Romans 8 31 through 39 what he did? Is it any wonder? Remembering that Paul probably, for an extended period of time was taught by Jesus one-on-one, I believe, face-to-face. As Jesus appeared to the other apostles in the 40 days, I believe He appeared to Paul, and I believe He says, here we go. We're going to have the biggest Bible study you ever had. Who? To have been there. Who? To have been there. And He came forth as a man, a lion of God. Why? Because He knew a man. Because he knew one man. Because his faith was in one man. What are we to do? Well, I've just given several suggestions. First, let us continue to develop an exalted understanding of Jesus by studying what the Word says about Him now. Who is He? We know a lot about what He has done in His earthly ministry, but then go past that into the epistles and into the Old Testament to find out who He is now. You see, because if He's not exalted now, what He did then makes no difference. Secondly, learn how faithful Jesus was as a man. And remember, He is still faithful. Did He ever get anywhere too late? Did He ever let anybody down? No. Did he ever lie? No. Remember Jesus' power over all things and storms. You remember diseases, death itself, demons, mean people, attitudes, motives, sin of any kind. And know that he still has the power over all things. Whatsoever, forever in all of our lives as believers. Faith in him, himself. Not what he can do surely faith in Him as demonstrated in what He can do. Seek to have a greater experience of Jesus' love. Ask for it. Father, pour upon me, into me, a greater experience of Your love. I have to have more of the presence and love and power of Christ in my life. Every moment of my life, pray that you get more so that His love can melt away the issues of sin in our lives. Recall the prayers of Jesus and how God answered them. And remember that we now have a privilege and responsibility to pray in His name. Remember that He has come the first time. And as He came the first time, He is coming back. I don't care what they say. He is coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. Seek for the gifting that He had and ask for it for yourself and for others for the enlargement of His kingdom. And as He walked in holiness, remember that we also can walk in the very same holiness. How to do this? Our faith, trust, our welcoming, our devotion, our desire, our commitment, our yielding, must be in Him personally, not in doctrines or in theory, but in Him as the living man in the heavens who is there for us and as us. We must have the faith that who He was on earth for us, He is now the same in heaven for us. He's not changed. We must remember that He is our strength. He is our supply, our shield, and everything we need. I want to give one caution. We must be careful not to think that our faith works or walks alongside of God's grace and is somewhat independent of it. Be careful of that. Our faith is of God's grace, and the result of and the outflow from His grace. Our faith is of God's grace, and the outflow from His grace—that's our faith, rather. The very our faith is the very activity of His grace, His presence in us. Because we know that we are saved and we're sanctified and we're glorified by grace through faith, we also must remember that that faith is a result of God's grace and is His very means to fully accomplish His eternal purpose in us for His glory. And as He has done that, He will continue to do it but the same way. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. What is the remedy for my failing faith, my weakened faith? Know the Word of God, and as I know the work of God as Jesus is proclaimed in my life, Then I remember these words. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus or looking off to Jesus, the author and the completer, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. Who, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Is there anyone greater? Is there any greater object of our devotion? Is there any greater object of our giving, of our worship, of our obedience? morning we sang casting down our golden crowns. Remember that? In heaven we're going to gladly do what? Take the golden crowns off our heads. And do what with them? Cast them before Him who sits upon the throne. To say forever and finally. Yours is the glory. And we get excited. Isn't that exciting? Casting down our gold. Then can we today through our giving. Cast down our golden crowns and be as excited as we will be on that day. Don't hold on to your golden crown. Cast it away so that He will give us more for His glory. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, my Savior, our life, our hope, our exalted King. And what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Absolutely nothing. Therefore, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Father, Father, give us by your grace. Such an enlarged revelation, experience, and understanding, and appreciation, and reciprocation, so that who Jesus is now in heaven, that he may be now in earth, in us, so that truly your name is glorified in all things. And all the people of God said, Amen Amen and Amen. Thank you.